If you'd open up your Bibles to Leviticus 19, which is going to be on page 97 of those Blue Pew Bibles, this is a chapter that's often cited in the New Testament, including by Jesus himself. Now, Leviticus, if you don't know, is primarily a book of God's law. It can be fairly dry reading. But it's God's law given by God to God's people to be citizens in the society of Israel over 3,000 years ago. And part of the reason Leviticus 19 in particular gets cited so often is because it contains both a summary of many of God's commands for us, and it particularly tells us how we're to treat one another and the poor. And it contains one of the primary motivators for obeying God. That motivator being our God's character. So Leviticus 19, verses 1 through 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses, the Lord being Yahweh, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy. For I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am Yahweh your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am Yahweh your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to Yahweh, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to Yahweh. And that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh, your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. 
Now, if you want to turn over to 1 Peter 1, which will be on page 1014 of the Pew Bibles. Today we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21 of 1 Peter 1. Now, we're working our way through the first letter of Peter in a series that we're calling, calling, calling Memory, Manners, and Mandates for God's Minority People. If you weren't here last week, uh, we looked at how our salvation in Jesus Christ was promised and prophesied throughout the Old Testament, which means that the Old Testament matters for us and we need to read it today. This week, we're then going to look and see that these promises of salvation that are throughout the whole Bible, through these promises, we receive help for hope, healing, and holiness in this life, in the right now, in the today, even in the midst of possible persecution. So 1 Peter 1, starting in verse... 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, the Apostle Peter writes, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully, literally gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, and here he quotes Leviticus 19, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers." Not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. All that I've read from the Old and New Testament are the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. God, in whom we set our hope, give us revelation of your grace and character this morning. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. And Holy Spirit, prepare us for action that we may in all things be sober-minded truly turning from ignorance and futile ways, and give us repentance and healing that we may walk in hope and holiness in this life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, On the back of the worship guide, there are notes, or at least there's a very thin outline, uh, and we'll be filling that in. But first, let me ask you something. Have you ever not been prepared for something? <laughs> maybe it was a test. Or maybe it was a presentation. Just something didn't go the way you expected and hoped, and you were not prepared for that. 
I think about last winter in Texas, right? The giant ice and snowstorm hit them at the beginning of this year, and they were not prepared for that, if you didn't know, right? There were power outages and broken pipes and millions of dollars worth of damage, and people were not able to have heat, and there were food shortages and water shortages for weeks because they were not prepared for that sort of winter storm in Texas. And lack of preparation leads to both surprise and disaster. Because <laughs> how do we react when we're unprepared? We can get angry, we can get annoyed, agitated, defensive, short and snippy. But this passage today is here so that doesn't happen to us spiritually. This passage today is Peter's encouragement to get prepared. Because we need to prepare spiritually for this life just as much as we need to prepare for our next day at the office or upcoming vacation or the next possible snowstorm. But a lot of this spiritual preparation is preparing our minds. Hence our call to worship, to set our mind on Christ and the reason Peter goes where he does here. And we can all actually relate with this. At least, if you're a wimp like me, when you go get a flu shot, you sort of have to mentally steal yourself for that little pinprick that lasts a second. Because it hurts so bad. Right? There's not a lot of prep work needed, but there is some prep work needed, but it's all in the mind. It's getting ready for that pinprick. Or more seriously, Sometimes you know you're going to have an unpleasant conversation at work. And there's not necessarily a lot of physical preparation to make. But you might spend time praying, rehearsing possibilities, and just emotionally stealing yourself. Preparing your mind. So we need to prepare for the Christian life. And Peter is teaching us in this passage to prepare our minds with hope, in order to heal and live holy. We prepare our minds with hope in order to heal and live holy lives. And if you haven't already guessed it, there is a third point not on your outline. In between holiness and hopefulness, there is healing. First, what are we preparing our minds for? Well, actually, we're preparing our minds for holiness, right? According to verse 13, we're preparing our minds for action, to be sober-minded. But then he goes on to quote Leviticus 19. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, in our world, at least with the people I spend time around, the word holy doesn't mean much. <laughs> like we, we use phrases like the holy grail of board games, right? Or uh, we talk about the concept of holy cows, 
whether we're using it as an exclamation or talking about Buddhism. But what does holy mean? I got to tell you, when I've met some holy people, they were the reason I ran away from religion for a long time. Maybe some of you guys can relate with that unattractive holiness. The problem is, at least in some cases, those people did not understand biblical holiness. In a lot of cases, I might say to you who have been turned off by holy people, name traits of religious people you don't like to be around, and I might agree with you. I don't want to be around those people either. They're kind of a drag because they're not acting much like Jesus with his manners and mandates. But Peter here gives us an idea of what the manners and mandates of biblical holiness are when he quotes Leviticus 19 because there's a whole context here. right? The focus of Leviticus 19 was on how we treat one another and the poor. And Peter is saying that if we live this way, we show ourselves to the world as set apart. They will know you by how you love one another. Right? And that's what holy means, to be set apart. Set apart for God as our God is set apart. So being holy in this context is treating people right. Believe it or not, that's, that's a pretty holy thing to do. Seeking justice for all people. Being kind. Being forgiving. Being full of grace and loving our enemy as ourselves. And we are to be holy because God who loves us is holy and that's how he is. Our God is awesome. He's all-powerful king of the universe, impartial judge. And our God humbled himself, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's holy. Our God is holy because even though he is righteous judge, he took our judgment upon himself in order to forgive us. Because that's who he is. Thanks be to God. God is holy because he approached the unclean and unlovable and showed them mercy, forgiveness, and loved the unlovable in Jesus Christ. Our God is holy because he loves perfectly and came to be the friend of sinners. And Jesus showed us what a full human life is meant to be. Full of love and service and grace. That's what our holy God is like. And that's what it means for us to be holy as he is holy. Because who doesn't want to be around someone like that? But do you see that all of this holiness in this passage is rooted in believing and hoping in the right Savior? See, Peter says that holy lives start with preparing our minds and setting them fully on the grace that comes at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's where our heads have to go. That's where we've got to get our minds focused. And 
that sounds sort of, I don't know, cliche, but the thing is, we live our lives out of our minds. I don't mean we're out of our minds like we're crazy. I mean what goes on in our heads ultimately leads us to whatever else we do. The decisions we make come out of the place where our heads are. So getting our heads on straight, that sounds like a good subtitle for a book. (laughs) Getting our heads on straight, preparing our minds, being sober-minded, setting our hopes, all these tasks are very mental. And they happen in our heads. But they're the only way to be holy. It's got to start there. Because where our heads are determine our actions in this life. Fact is, most biblical self-improvement revolves around how you think about life. And so, Peter starts out here talking about how we prepare our minds so that we can change how we think about life, so that we can prepare our minds by setting our minds on this hope. And it comes from an intentional directing of our thoughts, a conscious directing of our hopes, and a rehearsing of the truths that give us And he uses some pretty stark language to do this, right? He says, uh, our translation, the ESV says, prepare your minds for action, gird up your loins. This is intense. You're going to take some time for this. It's going to give you a headache maybe because it's like preparing to run or maybe even go into battle by wrapping up the togas they would have worn, right? Men and women didn't wear pants back then. They wore kind of robes. And if they were getting ready to run or fight, they'd like, wrap it up and get ready to run, get ready for battle, right? If I were going to run or fight, I'd need to wrap this robe around myself. And Peter says that we've got to get ready like that. It's intense so that we can be sober-minded. Though this isn't the sophroneo word that Mike has talked about so much. It's a different word in the Greek, nephontes. To be free from mental and spiritual drunkenness, free from emotional rashness or confusion. It's to be calm in how we make decisions. So many of our decisions are made out of panic, made out of fear. At least some of mine are. But when we set our hope fully, when we make the telos, the end, the goal of our hope, Jesus we find that there is sober-mindedness. Because this set your hope is an imperative. Set your hope. It's, um, again, the Greek would be helpful here. It's you. Hope completely in Jesus. Don't hope in anything else. Let everything else go. But what is hope? How do we set that? What is it? Well, the definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1 1 helps us out here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, we believe that what we cannot see is going to come to fruition, and we live in light of that. Sometimes we make decisions based on what we hope in rather than what we see. In fact, that's what we Christians do every day, and that works itself out in holiness. So we have to spend time stealing ourselves, mentally preparing, just like for work, just like for the flu shot, by looking at our hope. And so in whatever you're going through, don't let the world take you into panic, but set 
your hope in order to be holy. And then flowing out of that, being a holy person means you will also be a healing person. And that's why Peter says what he does about our former way of life. In verses 14 and 18. In verse 14, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And then he says some things, and he returns in verse 18, writing that we now live knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Right? This, this is an echo of, our, uh, of Ephesians 2, where Paul wrote, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, in order to adopt the manners and mandates of God, Paul and Peter are both saying we have to first have a memory of where we've been. And so preparing our minds for holiness with hope brings healing from our past. Now, if some of you are like some of the people I've sat in counseling rooms with, you're going to say something to me like, you know, I don't need to look at the past. I just need to look forward, not backwards. I just need to look at Jesus. But I just read you two passages that imperatively instruct you to remember where you've come from. Because they clear these passages, Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 1, clearly tell us that part of moving towards Jesus is remembering where we've come from in order to move forward. The stories we've lived make us who we are, guys. The stories we believe we inhabit in our minds shape how we process everything we go through. How we react to anything, the choices we make, come out of the stories we tell ourselves, whether we're right about those stories or not. And so all of our emotional reactions come out of what we think and believe about ourselves and the world around us. That's why we've got to inhabit the story of the gospel. That's why we've got to steal our minds with the hope of Jesus so that it informs our emotions and the choices we make. But then, knowing where we come from also gives us understanding of ourselves and where we are now, as well as where we need to go to walk more closely with Jesus. Also, knowing where we come from can encourage us and help us to repent of sin specifically. So I just named four different reasons we need to remember where we've come from. One, it gives us understanding of ourselves. Two, it encourages us. Three, it allows us to heal from past hurts and traumas. And four, it gives us direction on where to go. Or said another way, it helps us repent specifically. So I want to talk about each of those four briefly. First, remembering where we come from gives us a more accurate understanding of ourselves. As we grow in maturity in Christ our awareness of our sin should be growing. 
So the more mature we are in Christ, actually the bigger we see our sin. We, we discover ourselves to be more and more sinful as we grow. And now at first that sounds depressing. So as you get more mature, you actually grow more and more aware of how terrible you are and you see yourself as worse and worse? Yeah. And you see your Savior as bigger and bigger and bigger. And whatever terrible feelings you might have from seeing your sin are overcome with joy at what a Savior we have in Jesus. The bigger and more clearly we see our sin, the bigger and more clearly we see our Savior because we see all the more clearly what he saved us from. It's like trumpet playing. I've been waiting to use this one for a while, okay? It's like trumpet playing. Sometimes it feels like two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes it feels like you're playing worse now than you used to be. But a friend of mine posted on Facebook the other day about listening to recordings of himself playing trumpet and both how helpful and how helpful and encouraging that can be. And I think the principles of growing in musicianship apply to growing in maturity in Christ as we realize where we've been in the past. Here's what my friend wrote. There are times during our growth process where we feel like we're moving backward. Instead of getting better, everything feels like it's getting worse. But are you really getting worse? When our knowledge and experience grow, our expectations tend to grow alongside them. The accomplishments you would have celebrated when you first started your journey are now your minimal expectations. Remember that sometimes the reason that things feel off track is that we have reached a higher level of discernment of what it means to be on track. The same applies to growing in holiness. The more holy you are, the higher your standard for yourself. That's actually good. Second, of course, not only can this can be encouraging rather than just discouraging. Sometimes you listen to two recordings of yourself playing in the past that are a few years apart, and you hear the improvement over time, and you go, oh, thank God I'm not just stuck. Sometimes we need that encouragement. Just as we see ourselves as more sinful, we can also see that we're no longer conformed to the world we came out of. We can look at our former way of life before Jesus, and we can look at the non-Christian culture, and we can actually see how different we are and be encouraged by that. Now, I have to give a, a warning. Don't be like the Pharisee who said, thank God I'm not like those people, but rather humbly look at how you're different as a Christian and say, thank God. If it weren't for you and despite myself, I would be just as lost as any of those people. And let that drive you to humble compassion for broken sinners. This also lets us ask ourselves, in what ways are we still tempted to conform to the world around us? And so we need to continue to actively resist being conformed. Always show grace and mercy to those who have been. 
Third, remembering where we come from allows us to heal from past hurts and traumas. I've already said this, we're shaped by our past. Though we're new creations in Christ, until Jesus comes and we are glorified, we're still shaped by what came before we knew Christ. Whether it's by sins we committed or ways we've been sinned against, even since being in Christ. And so we really do have to think through our past and ask ourselves how experiences of being sinned against have made us cynical, hopeless, or apathetic. We have to ask, what ways do we react out of expectations that we think of as the norm, but maybe they're not the norm? Where do we need to seek reconciliation and forgiveness in order to move forward with our lives and be a witness to the watching world of the way the gospel transforms our lives? These are all places the gospel touches only as we remember where we've come from. The gospel can only heal these places when we remember. And fourth and closely related, remembering where we've come from then helps us repent specifically. Recognizing where you've been and come from makes your repentance specific. And we need that because there is nothing so useless as generic repentance. We commit specific, listable sins. And if we want to grow in Christ and move forward in holiness, we need to confess and repent of specific, listable sins and turn specifically to Jesus as Savior. So a good question to ask ourselves Again, thinking of our past and the ways we still need to grow is, what is my former ignorance? What is it to be aware of our former ignorance? Well, maybe it's family patterns that you didn't even realize were sinful until you got away from your family and God the believer said, that's not how normal people interact with one another. Or maybe you just still have habits, sinful habits, from the life and culture outside the faith that you've just never taken the time to grow out of. You've got to repent of that specifically. So whether it's literal family or not, people and events have shaped us from where we come from. These are our forefathers. And Jesus has freed and ransomed us from all these sinful patterns and falsehoods. And repentance then lets us walk out of the prison. Jesus has released us, Jesus releases us, and Jesus will release us. But we have to identify these places and repent of them specifically to find that healing in our lives, to let the gospel touch those places. But again, that takes preparation of mind, reflection, setting of hope. It's very intentional to ask and take the time to reflect, journal, and act on the question, what are the things of my forefathers that I have been ransomed from and need to repent of? But finally, what is the hope that brings all this holiness and healing? Where have you set your hope? 
you know, you say Jesus because you know that's the right answer. But where do you really hope for your deliverance and relief from? When what? When it falls apart, do you curl up in a ball? Go into seclusion? Or go into panic? There's lots of false hopes around us. The world calls us to many false hopes. So if you ever wonder if any false hopes of the world may be hurting your soul, just let me give you an easy litmus test. Our hearts are really revealed when our hope lets us down. Maybe your hope is in a particular movement gaining prominence and power, and when they don't, it feels like the world is coming to an end. Maybe your hope is simply to live comfortably and to be entertained so you don't have to deal with the world. When the struggles of the world come crashing in on you, you shut down. Those are the sorts of things that can be signs that you and I need to spend more time, more effort on aiming our hopes towards Jesus. And this is why our passage says that Jesus, uh, in verse 20, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Right? We turn to God through Jesus Christ and he brings the holiness and healing we've been talking about, fueled by one ingredient, hope, hopefulness. Without hopefulness in Christ, there will be no holiness nor healing. That's, That's where he started in verse 13, and it's where he ends. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then especially in verses 17 through 21, It is clear that all the holiness and healing, all the preparation is rooted in hope. And Peter points out two hopes in particular in this passage. One, the hope of the cross, and two, the hope of Advent. First, starting in verse 18, Peter writes that his readers, while they themselves may have been perpetrators of injustice or malice at one time, They have now been ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Right, That ransom is what I was talking about. That's what's paid the price. It's freed us, and it's why they and we can and do repent of those futile ways inherited from their forefathers. This is what the cross purchased, and this is the hope of the cross, that our sins are paid for. The price for our futile ways is taken care of. The ways and problems that we contributed to this world are going to be healed by Jesus, and we will not be held guilty because he died on the cross for our sins and rose again for our justification. And we look at that, we look at him on the cross, and we're just thankful. We love him because he loved us so much that he gave us his only son to pay the price we owe. But then in the midst of the problems and possible persecutions that we still live in, God doesn't stop at paying the price we owe. 
The second hope Peter points to after the cross is the hope of Advent. The second coming of Jesus Christ when God will crush evildoers and wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people. Now, if you don't know this, we loosely hold to a long thousands of, you know, thousand year old tradition called the church calendar. Uh, And so this is the first Sunday of what's called Advent during which uh, we think on the people of Israel looking forward to the Messiah in times of darkness when they didn't know when he was coming. And we relate to them by now waiting, knowing that our hope is the return of Jesus Christ who will make all things right. In verse 17, those who are going to conduct themselves with fear throughout the time of their exile do so because they call on God as Father who judges impartially. The judgment of God is part of the Christian hope. They are sure that God who loves them is also the judge that is going to set everything right that is wrong in the world. And my friends, these believers in the diaspora were probably suffering for their faith. They were being tempted to conform to worldly ways, either in assimilating or assaulting, either by giving in to the culture so they wouldn't be killed or by attacking back against the culture violently. But instead, Peter tells them to prepare their minds, to set their hopes so that they can be enabled to live holy lives, knowing that they've got Jesus who has died for their sins and will come again. Peter calls them to be servants instead of supercilious. It's a fancy word for arrogant. He calls them to be kind instead of contemptuous towards those who hate them. But that sort of hope, that sort of holiness only arises when your hope is in the fact that someone else is going to make it right. Looking at our Holy Father enables us to live in fear of God without fear of the world through this time of our exile. This word translated exile in verse 17 is the Greek paroikos, the state of being in a strange locality without citizenship. My friends, we Christians are different from the world around us because of what has been done for us through Jesus Christ. That's what our assurance of pardon was about. We are no longer strangers and aliens from God, but fellow citizens in the household of God. When we believe in Jesus, we aren't just holy by acting holy. We are holy, set apart by God, because God has set us apart and given us a different citizenship. And we need to live into that and live that out. That's why 1 Peter is the perfect passage for the first Sunday in Advent. But... Until Jesus comes again, I want to encourage you, friends. Let your life before the watching world as an exile, including how you deal with your past and the current culture around you, flow out of your hope, the hope of the cross and the hope of Jesus coming again. Let your holy life and your healing flow out of hope in the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Because what Jesus has done and will do is good news to get you prepared. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are the God who loves us, has given your Son for us, and will one day come to make all things right and even declare, acknowledge, and acquit us on that day. But until then, we ask for your 
grace, hope, and mercy that we may live before a watching world as exiles, a witness to your kingdom, and able to do that, honoring your name, hoping in you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.